Okay, welcome back to Kingdom 101, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for bringing us back. We thank you for the break that we have had, and we pray, Lord, that you will continue to teach us as we journey through the Gospels and digging into Scripture. Holy Spirit, will you please enable me, your servant, and also speak to your people, whether here physically or listening in to this recording. In all things, always, Lord Jesus, be magnified and be glorified. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. After a long trek, we have finally come to this part of uh, the book of Matthew. And the title is, From Mountain to Multitudes. If I ask you, do you like mountaintop experiences? I believe the answer would be yes. And I would love to just camp up on the mountain if uh, no one would want to disturb me. And I suppose that's why many times we would go to either a conference or a seminar, or we are happy to go to a camp where there's always a nice high at the end, right? And then we come back taking away uh, a wonderful, what we call a mountaintop experience, and we hope that we never have to uh, leave that place or we want to try to duplicate again. But as much as we love a mountaintop experience, you and I know that we are, we are not to be staying on top of the mountain all the time. And in this teaching, we will see from Scripture that there is a need to move from the mountain to the multitudes. So let's look at our text today. Is Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Let's begin always with a general observation and have a broad overview of what we're trying to cover today. I've only listed one verse for us, but we will be looking at quite a few chapters. I want to provide you a scan so that you can have a big picture that in the following weeks when we return, it will give you a better handle of where we are going. And so let's pull back this screen a little bit for ourselves, and I want you to see and note the pairs, almost like brackets. You know, M Matthew, when he was writing, he organized his material so meticulously and so well. He starts with something, he ends with something. He brackets it with something in the beginning. He brackets with something at the end. And if we would pay attention to these pairs or the parenthesis, uh, as it were, we will begin to see what Matthew is trying to communicate to his readers. So let's look at the first pair. We actually see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. That's the first pair I want you to notice. In 5, verse 1, we see Jesus going up onto the mountain. But in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, we see Him coming down from the mountain. And these two verses bracket three chapters that we took quite a while to finish. The Sermon on the Mount. These two verses give us a picture and a focus of the kingdom manifesto, chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's the first pair. The second pair, we've got to broaden that lens a little bit. So we see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, we see the needs of the multitudes. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and He was healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, 
And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them. We see the needs of the multitude. And then later on in Matthew chapter 9, 35 to 37, Matthew closes that section with almost exactly the same words again in verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching, preaching, healing every sickness, every disease. It's like, Matthew, why, why do you have to repeat yourself? I mean, we've heard you before. But Matthew was very precise in the way that he was recording. He was bracketing, okay, another section. And here we see he includes both the manifesto as well as a kingdom ministry, right? And so first we focus on Jesus going up and then down the mountain. We pull back, we see the needs of the multitudes before, we see the multitudes behind. And then there's a third pair that we mustn't miss. We see the involvement of the disciples, so if you scroll back a little bit, pull back your lens just a little bit more, widen that angle, now you see the mention of the disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, we have the account of Jesus inviting, calling His disciples. And if you go back and listen to that teaching, I make a very clear point that it was not the first time Jesus was meeting the disciples. The disciples would have followed Him and would have known Him. But this invitation was an invitation to a deeper commitment, to say, will you come, see what I'm doing? Will you come and follow me now? Because now my ministry begins at a new level and I'm going to need people to help me and I'm going to bring you along if you would follow me. Then they drop their nets. So this first bracket of the invitation and involvement of the disciples we see in Matthew 4, but right at the end, after we finish chapter 9, when we get to chapter 10, you have not an invitation now, you have instructions to the disciples. Because they have followed Jesus, they have watched Him, and now, right at the end, there would be an instruction to the disciples. See, if you miss these pairs, you miss what Matthew is trying to focus and communicate to us as readers or to the original readers. And you know, Matthew was a tax collector and we will meet him later in chapter 9. The invitation, the call of Matthew. And as an accounting person, I think he was very precise with his debits and credits. And so he, he brackets this, he pulls back and he sees the multitudes, but it's not just Jesus and then the multitudes, we begin to see the involvement also of the disciples. Now, once you have this big picture, we can zoom in a little bit now to what is the focus for us in this understanding of these few chapters. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, I've titled it this way, The King Declares with Authority. He was teaching unlike the scribes. It ends in chapter 7, verses 28, 29. When he had finished all these things, the people were amazed, astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one having authority. It was a different kind of authority. And the king was saying, this is how I'm going to teach you. This is how, what I'm declaring. This is what my kingdom is about. Now, after the king declares with authority, it wasn't all talk. He gets down the mountain and then he demonstrates this authority. And in a while, we will unpack this in chapter 8 and chapter 9, the next part of our journey. But you need to see this first. Otherwise, you will, you will see it in an isolation and not understand the context. Jesus declares and then Jesus demonstrates. 
Now, there's another way to word it. Up on the mountain, the master himself, as he calls the disciples, remember, it said that he went up on the mountain and after he had sat down, the disciples came to him. He was teaching disciples. He wasn't really teaching multitudes. The instruction and the teaching was really for the disciples specifically. The multitudes can sort of come for a trial lesson. Uh, you can listen if you want, you know. And if you want to sign up, uh, no problem, you can follow us. But it was very specific. The master was teaching his disciples. But when he comes down from the mountain, now the master trains his disciples. See, teaching and training are two different things, you know? Right? In teaching, I can, I can stand here and I can throw all kinds of things at you and I'll be teaching you. But if I miss in the training aspect, then it is not complete. Something is missing. And so if you want to evaluate discipleship in your own life, if you want to evaluate discipleship even in your own church, you've got to ask yourself, is there both teaching and training? Because if it's only a classroom setting, you are shortchanged or you're bluffing yourself. You're only academic. You only receive what you need to know in the head, but you never work it out, you never practice it. So Jesus as the master of masters, and you realize today in the internet, nah, there are a lot of master classes. Yeah, you've got to sign up for a master class in how to tell jokes. I mean, Steve Martin is teaching how to act comedy, you know. Uh, he has a master class to listen to uh, or to watch Gordon Ramsay teach you how to cook. Jesus' master class uh, is the master of all master classes. He brings the disciples along with him. He shows them how it is done. That's what discipleship is all about. And if you're missing any one of these aspects, you've got to ask yourself, how real then is your discipling or your discipleship? Now, after the king declares and after the king demonstrates, after the master teaches and after the master trains, he doesn't stop there. When you get to chapter 10, you will see that the king now delegates this authority. He says, now I've declared it. I've shown you that I can work with this. I can move with this authority. It doesn't stay with me. I'm going to give you this authority. I'm going to give you the same power and the authority that I have. But what is it for if I just give it to you and you have nothing to do? And so the master teaches, the master trains, the master tasks his disciples. See, he, first he brings them on an aligning journey and after that he gives them an assigning task. The alignment will always flow out into an assignment. He doesn't push them out on an assignment without first aligning them. And that's why we take this same pattern to say the moment you have been awakened, don't stop there. Don't jump straight to an assignment. The moment you are awakened, get onto an alignment because out of the aligning, God will do the assigning. This is Jesus' model and we want to learn from Him. The king delegates after that and then the master tasks his disciples with the assignment and he sends this first 12 at least out on a mission. Can you see this big picture? Helps you understand what we're getting into in this one session. Now we can zoom in a bit more to chapter 8 and chapter 9. Let's unpack this demonstration and training over these two chapters. We're not going to finish this in a few sessions. We're going to take a while. So I want you to remember this. 
across two chapters, there are actually nine accounts that chronicle or reports ten miracles. There are ten miracles that we will see and encounter and learn from. And I'll do my very best to walk you through it. And I want to learn as much as I can also as I prepare this for you. So the first one is the miracle of Jesus healing the leper. And here, Jesus demonstrates his power and the authority as the king and of his kingdom. It's not just healing a leper. We will see at the next time when we visit this passage again that the king is wanting to restore wholeness in the community because lepers are outcasts. They cannot come into the community. And every time they meet someone, they've got to shout unclean and people have to run away from them. Jesus is saying, look, I want to heal you, make you clean and bring you back in. And we'll unpack this and look at this more deeply the next time. The second one is we, we meet a centurion that says, my servant is not well. You know, can you please come? Uh, or no, can you just say the word? Don't even come because I'm not worthy. And here we see that the king is transcending ethnic barriers and, and bridging. You know, the, the Jews and the Gentiles don't talk. The centurion was a Gentile, was a Roman. And the king was breaking ethnic and tearing down racial barriers through this one miracle. The third miracle is a very short account of Jesus just healing Peter's mother-in-law. She had a fever, nothing drama, nothing big, and the fever left her. Right, And here the king removes gender prejudices because here he, he heals a woman. And in the culture at that point in time, the women were not given that place of prominence or priority. The fourth miracle was about Jesus calming the winds and the waves. They were crossing over to the other side across the sea and there was a storm. And here we see the king exercising his authority over nature, over physical elements, over creation. After that, he encounters two demon-possessed men. And here we see that the king has authority over spiritual powers and principalities. The sixth miracle is Jesus healing the paralytic. Remember the friends bring this guy in? And then Jesus shows his authority over the power and the dominion of sin. The Pharisees were doubting him and uh, saying bad things and thinking bad things about him. And then he demonstrates something over there, not just forgiving of sins, but also healing this paralyzed man. After that, we are very familiar with these two women, a one 12-year-old girl and a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. And it shows that the king has got authority and power over both death, he raises this girl up, and over disease that could not be cured for 12 years. Later on, he meets two blind men and he restores their sight. And here I believe Jesus is trying to show that he restores both physical as well as spiritual sight. He opens the eyes of the blind, not just physically, but also spiritually. After that, it was a mute, a guy who couldn't talk because he was demon-possessed. Jesus casts out the demon and restored his speech. And I believe that if we look at this, the king was releasing praise for the kingdom of God because if the, if the enemy catches your tongue and holds you down, then you can't glorify God and the powers of his kingdom. 
So 10 miracles. We're going to go through it one by one. But as we look at these 10 miracles collectively, maybe let me give you some footnotes. Many times when we look at miracles or today with the Word of Faith movement, you would have heard of this saying that goes something like this, that you need faith to be healed. That without faith, God cannot heal you. And many people, when they are not healed, they feel very condemned, right? Because they have been told that they did not believe enough. But if you look at all the 10 accounts, not all involved faith on the part of the one who received healing. So you cannot make a case for this understanding of faith. I'm not saying that faith is not good or not needed entirely, but you cannot have a blanket teaching to tell people you need to have faith, otherwise you will not be healed. Peter's mother-in-law was just sitting down there. She didn't even exercise any faith. We don't know whether she believed or not. And Jesus comes and touches her and then she just gets healed. The demon-possessed men, I mean, they were not even in the right mind to have faith. Isn't it true? In fact, it was the demons who was asking, saying, hello, hello, Jesus, can you not disturb us? The paralytic, he had no faith. We don't know whether he had faith. We know his friends had faith. The girl's father, in another account, Jesus said, you know, will you just believe? doesn't tell us whether he really believed or not after that. Same thing with the demon-possessed mute. Did he really believe or did he not know anything? So when we look at these 10 miracles, let's not have a brush stroke that says that you must have faith. Without faith, then you cannot be healed. And so let me submit to you, instead of a name-it, claim-it, entitlement mentality, I believe it is more important to note to note, don't miss this, note the posture of humility and worship. I think that's more important. The leper comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's like, Lord, you know, I, I don't presume. I'm asking you, are you willing? And if you say no, that's fine. Some people even make a case out of this. Jesus said he was willing. So they take this one verse to make it another story, to say Jesus is always willing. The centurion, when Jesus says, okay, I'll come, Immediately, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy. You see, we, we don't presume upon the, our king, his sovereignty, his power. The ruler came and fell before Jesus. He worshipped Jesus. I think I, I prefer to look at these postures of the heart. The blind man came to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy upon us. See, he's calling upon the grace and the mercy of this king. And so I always tell people, where there is faith, well, yeah, there may be healing. But the question is, where there is no healing yet, will there still be faith? You see, so if we only teach faith, and for some reason, God chooses to delay in His timing, how many people have been devastated and condemned because they think they are not worthy to be healed? So let us be careful as much as we want to believe and we want to teach something and help people to have healing. We also notice across these 10 cases, there are different modes of healing. No standard formula. Right? Jesus touched some, but not all. Some touched Jesus. Jesus spoke the word on location. Jesus spoke the word off location. When Jesus cast out the demons, right, it, it wasn't some long, it wasn't any big spiel, nothing. It was just, go. One word. We, we see these things. Sometimes we have to, it's quite 
hilarious, like, you know, when we look at the way we want to practice uh, healing or casting out our demons, there must be a certain tone, there must be something like that. I think we've got to learn from this. It's not the method, it's the king. Amen? It's not the method, it's not how we do it, it's our posture. Now, it's okay if you start learning some of these things first to practice, but more and more you will find out it's not us, it's all about Him. Okay, so these are miracle footnotes I want you to see. Now, across these two chapters, 10 miracles that we observe, suddenly, in between the accounts, there is a reference to discipleship. And so let me give you some discipleship footnotes. I, and I call this training on the go. It's like on-the-job training, you know? Like the, the disciples were walking with Him and they saw all these miracles and yet Matthew was recording something about discipleship. And we see this in Matthew chapter 8, 18 to 22. We see people coming to Jesus. A certain scribe comes to Him and He says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, right? And naturally, if you see someone moving in such power and signs and wonders, I think you will be tempted to follow Jesus. You might be tempted to say, can I follow you all the way, man? I, I really want to see this. This is really cool ministry. This is really anointing. But notice something. Jesus never lowered the bar. Jesus wasn't excited when people said, I want to follow you. He never lowered the bar. He will always say, you want to follow me? Okay, let me tell you, this is how it is. I mean, you better know what you're following and what is it you really are really after. Are you following the signs or what, you know? It's not only about the, the miracles, the, the wow factor, you know, very impressive. Uh, it's not the odd mission trip every once in a while that we go and then we come back and feel very good about it. Jesus saying, is saying this, is following me wholeheartedly. Are you on or are you not? I mean, you better make a decision. You know? Don't just simply just say, I will follow you. And then, today you are there, tomorrow you are gone. Jesus never lowered the bar. Whenever He teaches people, can you imagine the disciples listening in? Now, they have given up things to follow Him. Now, they will have to ask themselves one more time, is that what I really want to do? Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. We see Matthew himself responding to the grace and the mercy of the king. And interestingly, we notice there's something attractive about Jesus, something nice about this king. The Pharisees, the religious leaders said, how come we see your, your Jesus whining and dining with sinners and with tax collectors? And sometimes we are like that. Not sometimes. A lot of times we also can be like that. Right? We, we prefer theologians, but Jesus is comfortable with tax collectors. We prefer to hang out with spiritual superstars, but Jesus is happy to hang out with sinners. We have to ask, really, you know, and search deep within our hearts. You know. At some level, we are guilty of being like that too, you see. But Jesus is all about reaching out to the lost, and He quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's another question for us. We revel in sacrifices. The King reveals His mercy. What's our Christianity all about? What's discipleship really to us? And then later on, there's this question, do I fast? Should we fast? Or maybe don't need to fast? Interestingly, the teaching is tucked in between all the miracles. And I'm wondering if Matthew is trying to hint to us and say, you want to move like that? 
Get ready to fast. Sometimes we don't see the supernatural move because we are moving in the physical. Our flesh is still very much in control. We're still relying on our own strength and we're wondering why when we pray for people, things don't happen. And so Jesus is teaching this to say, when a bridegroom is not with you and you're waiting for this, you'll fast, but fast in the correct way. New wine skin, so that the new wine and both the wine and the wine skin will both be preserved. See, these are discipleship footnotes that are tucked in between the ten miracles. This is the overview I want to give to you this evening. Over the next sessions, we will unpack this a lot more. But for the rest of this time, let me give you Matthew's big idea as we look at mountain to multitude. First point is this. Very funny, huh? after so long, I tell you first point. <laughs> the first point is this. Don't miss the mountain-multitude connection. Don't miss the mountain-multitude connection. It is not the mountain or the multitudes. It is both the mountain and the multitudes. And I want us to be convinced that there's a time to learn. There's a time to sit at Jesus' feet. There's a time to have your silent retreat up on the mountaintop, to rest in His presence, a time to have your mountaintop experiences in God's presence. But there's also a time to put into practice what you have received, what you have learned, that you may share it with the people around you. Don't miss the mountain and multitude connection. Every alignment would push you towards an assignment. And as you move on the assignment, you also know that in the assignment, you will also show up the misalignment. And so as we move from a mountain to a multitude, you will realize that when you get to the multitude, you don't really want the multitudes, you want the mountain. On the mountain, the air is very fresh. But when you get to the multitudes, you smell different things. Correct? And when you're on the mountaintop, it's nice and quiet. You're all by yourself. It's just me and God. But when you get down to the multitudes, you see sickness, you see suffering, you see trouble, you see disease. And very quickly, you want to run back to the mountain already. Don't miss the connection. Moses enjoyed the mountain. I think if he had his own way, he would stay another 40 days. And God had to tell him, can you please go down? I hear the sound down there. I think got problem, huh? Uh, Moses, I think it's about time. He goes down there and then he sees a big mess. Can you see this? And he gets upset. You can call it holy, righteous anger, right? But it came to one point, he was so upset, he actually went back to God. He said, why do you just kill me? And he had to go back up to the mountain again to learn. Can you see the mountain and the multitude? Big difference. But you cannot miss this connection. Elijah was running from Jezebel. He goes to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, and he stays there. And then he hears God's voice. And as soon as he hears that, God says, time to go down. Right? And he sends him out again on the assignment to go to anoint Hazael, to anoint Jehu, and also Elisha. See, God would love for you to spend time with Him on the mountaintop, but there will be a time when He will say, this is now time, get down there to the multitude. Because that's where the work needs to be done. Don't miss the connection between the mountain and the multitude. The second point is, when you get down to the multitude, you're going to see the condition. 
the condition of a couple of things down there. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, all the way down, two chapters, from Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Now, when Matthew wrote this portion, he was referring to and quoting actually from Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. So he's quoting from Old Testament. He's saying, as the prophet Ezekiel has already prophesied and noticed the condition of the people, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Jesus sees the people and he sees exactly the same condition. When Jesus saw the crowd, it wasn't just people. It wasn't just a whole bunch of people that he sees. He sees beyond the surface. He looks deep into their hearts. They were weary, tired, exhausted. They were, in some translation, it says, harassed. They were scattered. I mean, can you imagine this? They were a multitude, but they were scattered. Now, don't miss this picture. It's a contradiction in terms, right? They are a multitude, a whole group of people, and then they were scattered. And the funny thing about church or even society is this. We can be among so many people and you are still alone. You can go to church every Sunday and you still feel as if you're the only person. That nobody knows you, no one cares about you. They were scattered and yet they were in a multitude. They had no relationship, there's no sense of belonging. Their feelings of aloneness. Now whenever we read a verse like this, we tend to associate this observation or this condition with the unsaved or the lost. That's not wrong. I mean, the world needs Jesus. The world needs hope. They need peace, and the answer is found only in Jesus Christ. They need to hear the good news of the kingdom. That's, that's why we are sent out to, to declare and to proclaim. But the funny thing is Matthew was writing and Ezekiel was prophesying about the people of God. How many times, right? I'm always reminding you, whenever you read Matthew, he was talking and he was writing to the Jews. These were the people of God. And isn't it funny? That here we are looking at the world out there and we say they are lost. If you go to church and you look at Christians, sometimes they are as lost. Sadly, there are many Christians who are no different from the world. They believe in Jesus, but they live as if they don't know their shepherd. This is the whole problem. And they also need not just the good news of salvation. They need the good news of the kingdom. See, if you stay on a mountain, you'll never see the multitude. You'll never see the multitude, you'll never notice this condition. And if your eyes are always on a mountaintop and you always want to get back to the mountain fresh air, then the moment you see a condition like this, you will run a mile. You don't want to stay there. And sometimes you can be within the multitude and miss everything because in our fast-paced society, it's so easy to miss this. In Singapore, it's very easy because we have cleaned up the city so well. Everybody looks nice and clean and as if everyone is enjoying a good life. But would you look deeper? Would you allow God to show you the hearts of these multitudes that you come into contact with? When you fellowship or when you come into contact with your family in the workplace, 
even in the church? Do you, do you see the people as people or do you see it just as, as numbers or resources to be used? If you only see as resources, then you'll miss everything below the surface. You will miss the condition. And sometimes the person can be the one next to you. How's your spouse doing? Right? We can miss this. We can miss this in our husband. We can miss this even in our wife. We can miss this in our children. Why? Because we are so caught up with ourselves and things that we have to do or our selfish agendas and so on. We missed everything. What do you see? When you go to the workplace, is your, how's your staff if you're a boss? How's your colleagues if you're a working person? If you're an employee, have you, have you seen the harassness of your boss? Or is the boss just harassing you so much that you can't see how harassed he is? Just think about that for a moment, right? I mean, these are the multitudes that we hobnob with every day. But if we're only chasing KPIs and trying to churn out reports, you will miss everything that God is trying to show you. We don't only see the condition of the people. We also see the condition of the establishment. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 4, in that same passage where we refer to Ezekiel talking about the shepherds as well, the sheep. It says there, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Now these words are very harsh words. These words are directed at the shepherds of Israel. They were supposed to be the kings, the rulers, the religious establishment. They were supposed to be shepherds and yet they were not caring for the flock. The flock, they were exploited, they were harassed, they were used, they were abused. And in the time of Jesus, I think you must have come to a, to a height. And that's why Jesus had very, very hard words for those in religious position and in authority. Very, very strong words. They were supposed to be looking after the people of God. But instead... They were using them, harassing them, you, and abusing them. Now, we're going to ask ourselves, as we see the condition of the people, do you realize that the condition of the people reveals the condition of the leaders? Let me say that again. Eh? The condition of the people will always reveal the condition of the leaders. Extend it a little bit further. It will reveal the state of how, how the church is or should be. It will reveal also the state of our government in that sense. Is the church having the right impact or the right influence? Are we having programmed activities or are, having, are we having purposeful assignment? And so if we only see the people as numbers to attend the things that we organize, we've missed something. So when you see the condition of the people, it begins to reveal the condition also of the establishment or of the leaders. You see, there's a connection between the mountain and the multitude. If you miss this connection, then you won't see what's happening down on the ground. But on the ground, you'll begin to see the condition of the people as well as the establishment. And the next thing is this. 
Jesus responded when he saw the multitudes. The verse says, Jesus was moved with compassion. The condition of the people deeply, deeply moved Jesus. If you do a study of this three words, moved with compassion, it comes only from one Greek word. But translated in English, it says moved with compassion. The root word actually is intestines, bowels, innermost parts, somewhere inside here. Funny, right? Why, why should it be that word? The Greeks use this word to describe something, a feeling, an emotion that's so deep within you, inside here. It is gut-wrenching. It churns in your stomach. Are you getting that picture? Okay, so Jesus didn't just look at the multitudes and, and go, oh, you poor things. No, no, Jesus didn't respond that way. When he saw the crowds, something snapped within him. Deep within his gut, it just stirred. He felt so deeply for the people. The English word compassion gives you another meaning or gives you another picture or perspective. The word calm means with. Passion means struggles or suffering. So Jesus didn't just feel deeply for the people. Jesus felt deeply with the people. He, he could empathize with their suffering, their pain, their lostness. He had compassion with them. And there's something we can learn from this. When we see someone struggling, do we just feel sorry for them? Do we just look at it and it's like, oh, you know, yeah, la, yeah I pray for you. La. Or does it move us to action? When was the last time we were, we were moved in such a manner to say, I, I need to do something about it? See, Jesus saw the multitudes. He saw the condition and Jesus moved. Jesus also knew the condition of the establishment. And I believe He was also deeply feeling against that institution that has become such an organization that instead of helping the people, they were not doing anything of that sort. But here's the thing I want, you to, I want us to see and not miss. Jesus didn't stand there and just complain and gripe and post on Facebook to say, how come they didn't do anything? <laughs> Today with Instagram and social media, Christians are very good at pointing fingers all over the place. If you are moved with compassion, it shouldn't be to write a remark only on Facebook. Jesus didn't gripe or complain. He moved deeper into the multitude and He did what needed to be done. See, Matthew was referring in, when he was quoting or alluding to Ezekiel chapter 34, Matthew was referring to God's promise that would culminate in a true shepherd that would appear. That there will come a time where, Israel, you will get a shepherd just like David. And he's going to be a good shepherd. He's the real thing. But even before Ezekiel pronounced that, God in Himself speaks through Ezekiel. He says, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And then later on in verse 23, then he says, I will establish one shepherd over them. And so God himself says, I will seek them out. But he says, I will establish a shepherd over them. And when Jesus comes and Matthew alludes and ascribes this verse to Jesus, what Matthew is saying is this, 
this is the shepherd, and this shepherd is not just a man, he's God. This is your king. This is the shepherd just like David. He will feed you and he will look after you. So when was the last time we were moved so deeply? Already moving from mountain to multitude, already we struggle. And yet to see the multitudes and to be moved by the challenges, whether it's of one person, ten persons, or one thousand, it makes no difference, right? The question is, are we moved? Are we moved? And one of the traits of our keepers awakening, the second one is that our keepers, when you're awakened, you are aware but not apathetic. To understand the condition of the people is that you become aware of the, of the things around you. But to be aware is only one part. If the heart does not beat with the heartbeat of the king, then you remain apathetic, that you don't care. You just know something, but you feel you don't have to do anything about it. But as you are awakened and you become aware and you move from apathy to something else, that moves you from assembly area to the area of operation, from mountain to multitude, from church to the crowds. That makes all the difference. Friends, Jesus didn't die for programs. Huh? Jesus died for people. And there are many who are harassed, weary and struggling, many who are lost and lonely, many who are scattered in need of family. And our shepherd king wants us to reach these for him. See, if you miss the connection of mountain and multitude, then you miss the condition of the people and the, and the needs out there. If you miss the condition, then there's nothing to talk about compassion. After that will come the commission. In verse 37, 38, Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I want you to imagine this. You know, I, I, I love to read the Bible and I get creative in, in the way I picture it and visualize it. So Jesus sees the multitudes. He's moved with compassion. Now his disciples are next to him. He looks at them. He says, hey, you pray, okay? Ask God to send workers out. I mean, look at these people. So many. I want person. I definitely cannot do this. So will you pray? Ask the Lord of the harvest. Send out the laborers. And then the disciples must have said, yes, amen. And they start to pray. And then the very next verse, God answers the prayer. Jesus looks at them and says, now you all go. <laughs> the prayer was answered immediately. One verse later must be the fastest prayer answered recorded in the Bible. Amen. <laughs> right? Huh? You guys don't laugh. You don't miss this, okay? If I ask you to pray and ask God to send out the workers, all of you will say amen. But you will never think that you are the worker. They were the answered prayer to their prayer. They asked God, send out. God says, yeah, I'm looking at you. Chapter 10, verse 1, when He had called His 12 disciples to Him, He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. He delegates them. He tasks them immediately. Chapter 10, instructions to the disciples after that. It's almost like Jesus looking at them and saying, now, have you seen enough? Have you observed enough? Can you see the needs out there? Let's ask the Lord for workers. And as you ask, get ready, because you are going to be that answered prayer. 
And for many people, you are that prayer that they have been praying about. Maybe you hold that one word. Maybe you hold that one coffee session with them. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But you are being commissioned. It's called an assignment. You are the laborers. Of course, some of us would just say, but I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. Who am I, right? And you've got to remember that the disciples were Galileans. What good can come out of Galilee? I mean, Jesus came out of Galilee. They were laughing at their master. Now the disciples are going, but we the same. Jesus says, look, you've seen this authority. I've demonstrated it now. I've taught you. I've trained you. Now you've got to go try this out. And it's good that you're nobody because then you can stand in who I am because I am the king. And you see, that's the whole heartbeat of our Keeper's Awakening. We are nobodies. We are, we are nameless guys. We are obscure little ones, you know. But if we can spend time on the mountain with Jesus, then we can get into the multitudes for Jesus. And we have to spend time doing what He tells us to do. I'll share with you my personal heart-wrenching moment I can't say that it has happened many times and I'm praying that my heart remains soft so that the, the Lord can work in and through me more and more as I, as I serve Him. This was three and a half years ago when I first came out of um, uh, my pastoral role running the school of ministry. I dropped everything. And in the month of November, you will remember uh, Typhoon Haiyan Yolanda hit the Philippines. Uh, I'm, I'm not a missions-minded guy, I, I, you, those of you who know me. Okay? I'm teacher-based. I'm very happy standing here teaching you, helping you, taking you out on a trip every now and then. That morning, open up the newspaper, I see photos of the devastation. And I can't explain this. You know, but as with all things, God sets us up. I see the photos and I just begin to... I just get very emotional. I begin, I, I, I begin to, to have this... Maybe I, I can't say whether it's gut-wrenching or not, but there was something that moved within me. And I remember telling my wife, I said, I, I don't know why, but I think if I can, I would like to go there. This guy, you know, I mean, city dweller, Singaporean, not a missions guy, never going to villages before, saying I want to go to a typhoon-affected area and a super typhoon at it. And lo and behold, my wife suddenly goes, yeah, okay, and let's, let's see how the Lord opens the door. Don't you love wives? You know, when, when they say okay, means okay. La. I wanted to go in. I didn't know anyone down there. I was connecting with some of my pastor friends. And the Lord just spoke very clearly. Don't do anything now because there's just too much chaos. And if you're asking for any funds now, everyone's going to give to the Red Cross, to UNICEF, or to whatever, United Nations. So you're, you're, it's all going to be very diluted. But by the time it came to January, the Lord said, now do it. I connected through a pastor. He introduces me to his other pastor friend in Takloban. The day before I connect with this pastor, the night, one or two nights before, he receives a vision from the Lord and he sketches out the house he wants to build for his members who have lost houses. When I contacted him, immediately he was able to send me a drawing of what he was going to do. It was crazy. I put it up onto my web and I tell friends and I publicize and I said, this is a personal effort. There's no receipt to give you. <laughs> you put it into my bank account if you want, but you trust me, I will account for everything that I do. Cut a long story short, we've gone to Takloban two times. We've seen 22 houses built. 
who have contributed pedicabs for their income and even a person gave a church van and to help that community come back in that one church. I mean, it's crazy. And I would be like any one of us saying, who am I? I mean, who are we to raise funds and do this kind of stuff and just to connect with a brother that we don't even know, but I trust from another pastor friend. But see, if you would be sensitive to how God is leading you, He will guide you every step of the way. Another pastor that I got in touch with was, another example is in India, Pastor Philip Yeluri. If you, you remember, he came for our awakening event. He was a stranger and he wanted to build a, dig a well for a village and they reach out to the untouchables. Nobody cares about these people in India. And I saw the need and I asked my friend who connected us and we just sold into that ministry and we were able to help a village have clean water. A couple of months later, he was ministering to another village and the fire broke out and burned down two houses. So he puts out a request and I say, okay, fine, we will contribute. These guys are not believers at all. And we were able to buy them new, new utensils, blankets and things like that for these two. And it has helped him reach out to this community to share the love of Jesus. And because of this relationship, he has come over to Singapore, trained as an Akipas, go back to Andhra Pradesh, and he's saying now, Akipas, will you come and train us? Well, you see, God moves in all these things. And I'm trying to share here with you that it doesn't have to be the big things. God gives us small assignments, and if we are faithful in these small things, God can help us to be faithful over many more things. So Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, this is the big picture I want to leave you with or start with. We must understand and remember the connection between the mountain and the multitude. I just finished teaching at Tongling Bible School and I was challenging them. I said, after school, what are you going to do? Sign up for another course. Ah? And this is the Singapore style, you know. After we go one course, we go for another course. After another course, we go for another course. And we, I, we go for so many courses until we don't know which other course to go. There's work ahead, my friends. Okay, don't miss the connection between the mountain and the multitude. But as you get down and into the multitudes, you, are, you, you will see the condition of the people. And I want to pray for you that as you go out, God will open your eyes. And God will not just open your eyes, God will open your heart. It's not just about us. Many times we think that our problems are the biggest problems in the whole wide world. But when you begin to talk to some other people, their problems are really much bigger than yours. Amen? Start to have the compassion of Jesus. Without compassion, you cannot minister. You cannot move. You can do one, you can do two things, and then you'll, 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 you will stop. Alright? Your heart needs to beat like the heart of Jesus. Get ready to be commissioned. If you're praying for the Lord to send out laborers of the harvest, you're it. You're it. Because I'm praying for God to raise up our keepers to be awakened, aligned, and assigned. Right? For those of us who are on our assignments, we are doing it and we are serving people so that others can then get onto their assignment. That's what it's all about. Okay? And so as we close, let me entice you, let me encourage you, let me interest you, can I say this? Over the next sessions, we will journey with Jesus and we're going to learn from our King and our Master. But we will not remain passive. This is my challenge to myself and to all of you. 
we will put the teaching and the training into practice. And so after each session, we will pray for the sick and all who have need. That's what we're going to do, right? We're not going to have a one-way street where I'm going to teach you this, you take notes and we walk out the hall and we come back to this mountaintop again. Okay? So I want you to invite your friends. Be like the friends of the paralytic. If there's someone who needs to hear the word of the kingdom, bring them here. And then we pray that God will let them experience it. I mean, God can touch lives anyway, anywhere. Let them experience the love, the grace, the power of Jesus. And I'll be the first to tell you, we don't know how it will go, what will happen. I mean, God is free to do what He wants to do and Jesus is free to manifest the Holy Spirit any way He wants. All we will do is to be faithful. And we will just believe that our King has the authority. And our posture is one of humility and of worship. And so I invite your partnership. Right? Invite your partnership. And don't be surprised, I'm not going to be the one praying only. All of us will be standing. All of us will be praying for someone else or for one another. Because we're going to be putting everything we learn into practice. Alright, so this season is very different. We have moved out from the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting into a very practical session. Please don't run out on me, eh? <laughs> Who's coming back next week? Who's bringing someone who needs Jesus? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. This is your word. I'm only preaching and teaching the word of the kingdom. I have no power, I have no authority except what Jesus gives to me. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would have convicted us, Lord, that it's not just about mountaintop experiences, which are nice, which you are thankful for, which are needful. But Lord, at the right time, you will send us out into the multitudes. And so I pray, I pray for this hall to be filled, Lord. I pray for people who will come not just for a teaching, but to receive the grace and the mercy and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. I pray for ourselves also, that we will not be inward looking, Lord. I pray for our eyes to be open to see the condition of the people. I pray for our hearts to beat with the compassion of our King. And I pray, Lord, for our posture of humility, of worship, that, Lord, it's all about you. can't claim any credit. All glory and all honour will go to you. King Jesus, we praise you. We love you. Thank you, Lord. And so prepare us, Lord, and prepare this place also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.